BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Good morning and welcome to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad that you're here with us this Friday morning. We made it to Friday. You're here. I'm here. Guess what? Today is National Puzzle Day. In case you didn't know, if you're puzzled about what to do this weekend, whip out one of these puzzles. Each year on January 29th, National Puzzle Day recognizes how exercising our brains with puzzles is just one of its many benefits. Whether it's a crossword, jigsaw, trivia, word searches, brain teasers, or Sudoku, puzzles put our minds to work. Studies have found out when we are on a jigsaw puzzle, we use both sides of the brain. And spending time daily working on puzzles improves memory, cognitive function, and problem-solving skills. Well, if your kids are trapped and going stir-crazy, this is a great idea. Put them to work on this. It'll be good for their brains, too. Win-win all around, especially here in the wintertime. People are getting cabin fever. Maybe this is my uh, solution for you. All right, we're going to move to our first guest. His name is Brett Bruin. He is president of the Global Situation Room, Incorporated, and he was director of global engagement at the White House for former President Obama. And he's here to talk about foreign policy now in the Biden administration. Good morning, Brett. Great to be with you. So, Brett, you have a very interesting op-ed in Business Insider that I think our readers will find very interesting. And you basically make the argument, you say that Biden is blowing his best chance to restore America's standing in the world and inspire faith among our diplomats. And what you say is that you expected more from this administration. Joe Biden promised to build America's global leadership back better. A big part of that is our ability to conduct diplomacy. But most of the top jobs at the State Department, National Security Council, and the American Mission to the United Nations now have announced appointees, and almost none of them are career diplomats. Brett, you went out on a limb here to go and criticize the Biden administration. Uh, you're a Democrat who had worked, or I, I don't know your partisan affiliation, but you had worked for a Democrat at a very senior level, Barack Obama. What's been the response to this op-ed? Yeah, and I was a career diplomat. So I actually started under Colin Powell at the State Department when George W. Bush was president. I uh, did work in the Obama White House as a career appointee. And my loyalties lie with the diplomatic corps. And that's why I wrote the op-ed, because I think they are getting uh, overlooked. They are not getting uh, the positions that, uh, quite frankly, they were promised uh, during the campaign. And I think calling attention to this calling attention to the fact that ambassadorships need to be uh, not doled out as party favors to the well-connected or the well-to-do. Um, it, it's just time that we restore uh, diplomats to their rightful place in the Situation Room at the top of the State Department. The fact that it will be, if uh, Biden's nominees are confirmed, the first time in over a quarter of a century that a career diplomat is not in one of the top three positions at the State Department is, quite frankly, unacceptable. Well, that's really interesting. I guess on the flip side, the argument would be, hey, 
you know, Donald Trump broke the mold because he said we're not supposed to have these quote unquote swamp creatures. And I am not trying to call you that, but I'm just saying people who have been career diplomats who have spent their lives working in government that that they want disruption. So is Joe Biden continuing that disruption to just bring in his own team? And also, isn't a whoever wins, as as presidents like to say, that elections have consequences, that they have the right to bring in their own team? You know, it's interesting, Carrie, because uh, one of the trends that I notice is that we're going back to where we were, not just under President Obama, but for that matter, the George W. Bush administration and their predecessors, where the political uh, types come in. And one of the points that I make in the article is that if uh, we are sending the message to our career diplomats, because there are appointees who were diplomats before, but what I'm saying is these also are folks that worked on the campaign, that did a lot of fundraising, and that should not be the path to the top national security positions. We should choose them based on experience. We should choose them based on the fact that they are going to live beyond an administration. They're going to live beyond a party. And if all of a sudden we are saying that for national security positions, you have to align yourself with one camp or the other, that's a really dangerous prospect for the stability of our diplomatic corps. Sure. But I guess, again, to just play the, the other side, the the argument that uh, whoever wins an election, I mean, that's how the framers set up our system, that the person who won an election, they have the right to put who they want at the top. And the people who are the long term people who have been at the agencies for a long time, they they know how it works. Is that uh, if you want to make change, though, if you want to make reforms, if if in this case, Biden or in the previous case, Trump, if, if you want to make change, why would you have the same people who just were doing the same thing? Isn't that the definition of insanity? Well, I would say a couple things. One, the, the career diplomatic corps, as I did, serves whether it's a Republican administration, a Democratic administration, an independent administration. They are there to ensure the continuity and to ensure, quite frankly, the security of our country. And we want to have those people. And let me just give you an example. If you don't have uh, folks who were working with the Trump administration for the last four years, now in the room, now in those core discussions, you're missing critical information about how the world has changed, about how we operate. So I think for continuity, for the, the insights, it, it is important. And I also would point out that Biden had promised to empower the diplomats and you don't empower them by excluding them from the top position. So this is really calling attention to the fact that it was a campaign promise that Biden made and that he needs to deliver on. Well, that's really interesting. So you think that people who are in the Trump administration are being shut out and their expertise on issues maybe like China, for example, or Iran, that that expertise will not be heard? Yeah, exactly. And that you won't have the benefit of the experience of working on the front lines of diplomacy over the last four years. We do need people who understood, whether they agreed with it or not, they understood the policies, they understood the realities of what was happening in the last four years. And when uh, that information, when the uh, decision makers don't have the benefit of that information in those high level policy decision making processes, and I've seen it firsthand, it, it, mistakes are made. It becomes uh, really uh, challenging for even the implementation of policy when you don't have the benefit of those who are responsible for carrying it out in the room. 
Real quick, Brett, do you think that China is a much bigger risk now versus when you were in office in the Obama White House? And is, is Biden prepared to deal with it? Is he able to deal with it? Without question, China has uh, shed some of the constraints, the chains that they had imposed on, on their own diplomacy. And what we're going to see now, and, and Tony Blinken said it in his confirmation hearing, we're going to keep the same goals that the Trump administration has. We're just going to try different tactics. All right, Brett Bruin, we appreciate it. Stay tuned, folks. We have Tom Bevan, the head at Real Clear Politics, here to break down the latest in the political world. Stay tuned. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey there, welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and so glad that you are here with us. We love getting our viewer feedback. I put up this question yesterday. I said, why is Florida seeing fewer COVID deaths than LA even with strict California shutdowns? I talked about the data expert, Justin Hart, who was on my program. You guys had a lot to say about this. Josie Hanna said, because we have a smarter governor, Florida has top-notch conservative running the important stuff, freedom to live out our lives the way we see fit, open businesses and lower taxes, and we follow the Florida science. Stay open. On the flip side, there was a, a commenter named The Stinger 8. The Stinger 8 says, these idiots are frustrating. Compare one of the most densely populated cities in the country to a state, then pretend they're the same. Well, hey, The Stinger, let me remind you that I asked this very question of our guests. I, I asked Justin uh, if if he controlled for this, the fact that you're talking about uh, a, you know, a city like Los Angeles versus a whole state in Florida. And he said, yes, when they did the number crunching, that yes, they controlled for that. And still they found that there was a huge spike in Los Angeles in spite of California's strict shutdowns. So we love having this conversation. The Stinger comeback. Uh, keep doing it. Uh, let us know what you think and tell me what you think. I'm at Carrie Sheffield. And we're going to move now to Tom Bevan. He's the president of Real Clear Politics. You know and love that website. Uh, it's it's uh, refreshing. It brings left and right together. And it's great to have Tom here this morning. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Carrie. All right. So, Tom, let's talk about what's happening with President Biden and executive action. So the New York Times, a little bit surprising here. They wrote an op-ed and they said, ease up on the executive actions, Joe. President Biden is right to not let his agenda be held hostage, but legislating through Congress is a better path. So it's interesting because you have a very liberal editorial page saying to Joe Biden, hey, let's tap the brakes here a little bit. Their concern is that they don't want these executive actions to be taken over just by if there's a Republican coming in office by the by the stroke of a pen. And just for comparison's sake, I want to put this up on screen just to see how much Joe Biden has gone out of the way compared to the people uh, before him. So Joe Biden said he was all about a return to normal. Well, guess what? He's not normal at all. He's already had 22 executive orders in the first week of office. This is compared to just four for fr former President Donald Trump, five for former President Barack Obama, zero for George W. Bush, 
two for Bill Clinton, one for George Bush Sr., zero for Ronald Reagan, and one for Jimmy Carter. So if I was going to make the case to say that there was a president who was bringing instability to governance, arguably based on recent history, you could say it was Joe Biden. What do you think, Tom? Dare we say he's shattering norms? Uh, <laughs> look, he obviously has taken the executive order approach to this uh, very, very aggressively. <clears throat> and and some of those things have been, and you know, he he said regarding tax policy, uh, you know, last year during the campaign that that you know he wasn't wasn't going to pursue uh, executive orders because that was what a dictator would do. Uh, he Jen Psaki got that question yesterday uh, at at the press briefing. Um, it's largely supported by Democrats. Uh, th these moves, despite the fact, as the New York Times point, New York Times editorial points out, right, the risk that they run, that Biden runs and the Democrats run, is that everything that he's doing now, because it's not going through the legislative process, can be undone with the stroke of a pen. And you can bet that that a Republican who's in office, whether it's in four years, eight years, whenever, will pursue uh, the same strategy now that Biden has established this as the, as the baseline, uh, particularly if they're facing uh, you know, a Congress where they might have some resistance. And ironically enough, Democrats control both chambers of Congress, but their margins aren't enough to do a lot of these things through legislation. And that's where I think the potential risk and downfall of this strategy exists. Right. So it's not so much so that this liberal editorial page is, is wanting to restore norms. It's more that they don't want the liberal agenda to be dismantled by a Republican president. Do you think that's kind of hypocritical here for The New York Times to be saying this uh, when you have over and over, as you as you mentioned, uh, liberal media would always say that Trump is shattering norms, yet somehow it's not about the norms per se. It's really about the liberal agenda here. Right. I mean, just imagine if Donald Trump had come into office and issued, you know, two dozen executive orders in the first four days. Talk about, you know, the media would have their hair on fire. And largely, they've just been sort of dutifully reporting, uh, you know, his and, the, and these executive orders, by the way, um, you know, he came into office saying, look, I'm going to take care of COVID. It's the number one thing. And, and while he has done a couple of executive orders regarding COVID policy, um, his other executive orders have been, you know, parts of the Democratic sort of wish list on cultural issues, transgender issues, climate change, immigration. I mean, it's really spanned the gamut uh, in terms of things that, you know, Democrats have wanted to do legislatively, but haven't been able to accomplish. And here comes Joe Biden with the stroke of a pen um, making, you know, the kind of moves that he's able to make on these issues. And so it does raise uh, the issue of, of hypocrisy. But again, most rank and file and Democrats are behind it. They want to see Biden move forward with his agenda via executive order. They want to see the Democrats blow up the filibuster, the legislative filibuster in the Senate so that they can start getting some legislative priorities through Congress as well. Tom, I want to ask you, because one of the things that Donald Trump, uh, you know, was very big about was was preserving the oil and gas industry and taking care of the, of the miners and people who are drilling and drill, baby, drill. But again, it's executive action pen. Joe Biden comes in. He destroys the Keystone Pipeline. The unions have pushed back on that. There are at least three unions who endorsed Joe Biden during the 2020 campaign who are now turning around and saying, 
wow, why are you doing this? You're destroying thousands of union jobs by this. There's also some talk that unions might be upset about what Biden is doing on health care. He's through executive action again, expanding the uh, Obamacare access portal on the website. And some unions uh, in 2019 were nervous about trying to shove more people onto government health care because they have some great packages that they negotiated with the employers in the private sector. So they're worried this could shove more people eventually into government health care. They don't want to give that up. There's also the issue of immigration. A lot of unions supported what Trump was saying about restricting immigration because a lot a lot of illegal immigrants would come in and displace a union worker because they're going to come in and be cheaper. Do you think that Biden is positioning himself here to be really uh, at odds with unions? Well, that's certainly, um, you know, one potential result of this. And, and I agree. I mean, look, the the health care issue not I don't think is as resonant as the oil and gas. I mean, you talk about what's going on in New Mexico, which is a Democratic state. Um, where there's, they've seen tremendous pushback there, um, and also in Wyoming, because the ban that he has put in, in place is on federal lands, right? No new leases for oil or gas. Um, in Wyoming, for example, that's $300 million of revenue that goes to the state. And oh, by the way, $150 million of that $300 million goes to K-12 education, public education in the state of Wyoming. Where are those dollars going to come from now? Um, so this is going to have ramifications across the the board in terms not only with union members but but across the uh, the spectrum because it touches on a lot of different things and so I think that is going to be an issue that that potentially he will see some blowback from um, by even members of his own party in places like perhaps Pennsylvania um, and other parts of the Rust Belt. And what about immigration? Do you think that could hurt him with blue collar union members? Potentially, potentially. I mean, immigration is traditionally. Uh, it's an issue that animates Republicans more than Democrats. It's still not an issue that rises when, when pollsters ask, you know, what's the number one concern on the minds of voters? It's always, uh, well, th this year it's COVID, but it's always health care. Um, it's always jobs in the economy. To the extent that immigration impacts jobs in the economy, it could have an effect, yes. All right, Tom Pevin there at Real Clear Politics. Thank you. Thanks, Carrie. Stay with us. We have Hans von Spakovsky. We're going to talk about the 14th Amendment. Can the Democrats... Put a kibosh on Trump running for office again. He's going to let us know. Stay tuned. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? more confident, capable surgeons, and even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey there, good morning, and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, and so glad that you're here with us. Well, the Democrats are trying anything they can to block former President Trump from ever running for office again. Now, it looks like they will not have the votes to convict President Trump, former President Trump, and convict him of the impeachment charge of insurrection that the House passed so easily. And it looks like, because they won't be able to convict, they're trying to do some other tricks, trying to pull some other tricks out of their bag. And one of those tricks is the 14th Amendment. Now, the 14th Amendment, it has the, uh, yes, to, to quote Senator Richard, Richard Blumenthal, Democrat, he says, the remedies of the 14th Amendment certainly may be appropriate for someone who incites an insurrection as Donald Trump did. The argument that the legal bar for incitement 
I, I did a piece also here at Just the News. The legal standard for incitement is a very specific and technical definition. So I spoke to someone who was very senior, formerly at the FBI, and he said there's just not enough there. Uh, my latest piece at justthenews.com looks at this, and what this FBI expert said was that the 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 intention has to be there, the intention for violence and also the commitment to commit violence. And so if you look at everything President Trump has said and everything he did, this definition is not met. This is according to a senior former FBI official, as well as Alan Dershowitz, who I spoke with for this article. So this question legally, if the president, according to the FBI, the own government standards, if the president committed incitement, that threshold has not been met. So now let's turn over to the politics of it. And that's where the 14th Amendment comes into play, because the 14th Amendment is where, uh, after the Civil War, Congress passed an amendment to say that the anyone who committed an insurrection um, cannot run for office again. And here to tell us if this is applicable and what it all means is Hans von Spakovsky. He's a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Good morning, Hans. Good morning, Carrie. So, Hans. 14th Amendment, how likely is this to be successful? Well, I don't think it should be successful because I don't think it's applicable at all. As you said, this was a post-Civil War amendment, and it was specifically aimed at uh, Confederate officers and others who had engaged in a civil war in a rebellion against uh, the government of the United States. Uh, it was not intended to be used against political opponents and it certainly wasn't intended to be used for someone who may have engaged in inflammatory rhetoric, but we see inflammatory rhetoric all the time in American politics. And in essence, uh, they would be using the 14th Amendment against the president because of the fact that he disputed the outcome of the election. You know, you can disagree with, with, with that, uh, but it just simply does not fit uh, the 14th Amendment. He did not engage in a conspiracy to rebel against the government of the United States like Confederate officers did. So you're saying it's apples to oranges. But so yeah. if we're saying, okay, legally, it doesn't look like he's met the case legally. You know what it reminds me of is Brett Kavanaugh when people, you know, the left was trying to destroy Brett Kavanaugh and they said, okay, we don't have a legal case here. We don't have any evidence. We have nothing that could right. be used in a court of law. We couldn't indict him on this. There's there's nothing here. But this is a character test, and it's a, a political test, essentially, is what they were trying to make. They were trying to make the case politically that this is something that they should keep Kavanaugh out of office. Do you think that's a fair comparison? And do you think in the case of the actual votes, do they have enough votes here to get this over the finish line? I... <laughs> I don't think they have enough votes to get it through the Senate. Um, they might through the House and on a party line vote. But I do think it's exactly like that. And frankly, uh, I wonder whether they're doing this because of uh, history. Remember, Andrew Jackson lost his first race for president and made a great deal about the fact that he had been cheated. And that became a rallying point for his supporters. And he used that to then run for president and win the second time he ran. And I wonder whether Democrats are afraid that uh, now former President Trump will basically repeat that historical example. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, and the fact that um, 
uh, he was successful in getting back into office could be a precedent right. also. But uh, in terms of the Senate, so one thing that we've been talking about is this question of reconciliation, which is such a, a beltway word. But reconciliation basically means if Congress can tie something to a budget issue, then they right. can pass it without having to get that 60 threshold, the filibuster in the Senate vote. You could just do it with 50 or 51, the 51 majority, which is what they have here because of Senator, uh, you know, now Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, so do you think that they might be trying to tie this in some way to try to use reconciliation? Yeah, I think they would, although that would be an outright violation of the rules of the Senate. Because as you said, the, the issue at hand has to be pertinent to and part of uh, the budgeting process. And a, a resolution condemning the president and saying that he violated the 14th Amendment, there's no way that anyone rationally could say that that's somehow related to the budget. I mean, that's just an absurd, an absurd claim that we all know is not correct. But if they try to say, oh, well, there is damage to the Capitol, that's a budget issue. <laughs> yeah, I guess they can make that claim, but I don't think there's anyone in the country that would not realize that that's just a, a false claim being made to justify what they're doing. And, and they're justifying, they're using it to justify breaking the rules, which given their contempt for the Constitution and the rule of law, I guess would be no surprise. All right. Again, just playing the movie forward, if Democrats were to somehow try to use reconciliation and they pass it, this is a censure. And then it has the 14th Amendment where it says, oh, he's banned. We're invoking it. He can never run for right. office. What would then happen? Would this go to the Supreme Court? Well, I guess the president could sue, uh, sue Congress attempting to overturn this. The problem would be that the Supreme Court might not be willing to take the case because they might say, well, this is a political question. You know, it's a political question between the former president and Congress, and we're not going to get into it. And I, frankly, there's never been a case like this before the court. And I, I have absolutely no way of predicting what they would do with it. Interesting. But isn't this an argument to say, well, this is a legislative issue because we're talking about the fact that trying to use the legislative process to define something, a fiscal issue, a budget issue in a way that under the legal definition is not true? Well, yeah, that is one way of looking at it. But again, I think the Supreme Court might not be willing to get into it because they're going to say the rules that a legislature has and the interpretation of those rules is entirely the prerogative of the legislature. And we, the court, are not going to get into that and question it. All right. So you're saying you think there's a very real chance that the Democrats could potentially do this and that the Supreme Court could deny uh, a hearing about it? Yes. Unfortunately, that, that is exactly what could happen. So if you were advising President Trump, what would you give? What advice would you give him? Well, I think the biggest argument that he needs to be making right now is re regardless of, of what was said in the speeches uh, prior to the violence at the Capitol, which we all say was uh, we all know was unacceptable, that it's unconstitutional to hold a trial, an impeachment trial of a private citizen. It's very clear that's what the Constitution says. And that's the argument he needs to push forward uh, in the Senate. All right. What about a censure trial? Uh, there's nothing in the Constitution uh, that allows the censorship of a former president. And again, he needs to put forward the argument that this is beyond the power of Congress.
All right, we'll be watching Hans von Spakovsky. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Stay tuned. We've got a new think tank in the works. Stay tuned. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey there, welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and so glad that you're with us. Well, a lot of supporters and voters of former President Trump after the election loss are wondering what's next. What happens next with the MAGA movement? And joining me to discuss this is Russ Vote. He's the former director of the Office of Management and Budget under former President Trump. And he's also the president of a brand new organization. It's called the Center for American Restoration. And they're looking to set the agenda for the MAGA movement. Good morning, Russ. Thanks, Carrie, for having me on. Good to have you. So walk us through. You had a Federalist essay where you outlined this. You just launched it this week, and congratulations on the launch. So your headline is How to Lead the United States into an American Spring. And you're asking, you say, okay, where do we go from here? And you said the answer is easy for some. The establishment desires to move beyond Trump and return to business as usual, where powerful interests have an outsized voice in setting the agenda, where policy objectives are routinely sterilized of all perceived political risk, and where elites keep their base of voters in the dark. And here you guys come and you say, nope, no more business as usual. You can't go back to the 2015 days pre-escalator uh, descent of, of President Trump there uh, at Trump Tower. And you're saying, no, the MAGA movement's going to continue. But now uh, Democrats are, are controlling the White House and controlling Congress. What's the path forward for you guys? What are you going to do with this think tank? Well, I think the important thing is to make sure we can't go back and that we use the very tight uh, majorities that the Democrats have to be able to move forward and and push back on the Biden administration. And what I mean by that is already you're seeing calls for us to stay in Afghanistan. Uh, and what we want to be able to say is, no, we, we've had a, a lengthy national debate and we're going to be pulling our troops home so that we don't have endless wars. That's just one example. You're already seeing examples of, of where uh, Biden is putting forward amnesty policies. And in the same way, uh, we need to make sure the Republican Party and, and, and all of those on the, on the who are of that same uh, mindset, center-right mindset, say, no, we, we're a country. We need borders. We need to make sure that we don't have policies that uh, lead to human trafficking uh, in, the, in Central America up through Mexico. And so all of these, um, issue by issue, we're going to try and make sure that we can make sure that we, we maintain our gains over the last four years and we can put up as much of a, an opposition against the Biden administration as we possibly can. And uh, former President Trump put out an endorsement, a quote, when you launched the Center for American Restoration. His quote, he says, Russell Vogt did a fabulous job in my administration, and I have no doubt he will do a great job in continuing our quest to make America great again. So you've got the endorsement there of your former boss. But we do know that former President Trump also has a PAC, uh, you know, political action committee that he's being, uh, you've been able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars for. Are you going to be working with this PAC? What's your relationship going to be like? Because you've got your 501c3, your nonprofit, and then your 501c4, which is for advocacy. But are you going to be working with the, uh, the official Trump PAC as well? 
We're not in the election space. This is about ideas and policies and proposals. And I got to talk to the president earlier this week, and, and he was excited about what we were doing. Um, you know, he's uh, settling in down there, and he's going to be an important voice going forward. And I, my, my hope is that uh, that voice is uh, come straight from him at some point. Uh, but I think what the America First movement needs is the institutionalization of these ideas. And so we're happy to play our part in that with uh, American Restoration, the center, uh, and the American Restoration Action, which is, will be the activist arm of, of our organization. So you guys had a couple coverage articles in the Washington Post, and one of them was someone who was critical. He said he called it the oxymoron of a populist think tank. What exactly is a, a populist think tank? And then you had another one that was positive, Henry Olson, and he says that conservative populism might finally be getting the intellectual heft that it needs. He says that Donald Trump entered his presidency with a clear set of instincts, but little in the way of detailed policy proposals. That cannot continue if the conservative populist alliance that many on the right envision is to grow and flourish. So tell us, what exactly is a populist conservatism? What is a populist think tank look like for you? Well, I think one of the things it means is, is, is recognizing that populism can be constitutional and it can be a good thing. It can be conservative. There is a view on the right at times, that populism is a bad thing. And if you go back and you look, uh, our founding fathers did not have a bad view of, of constitutional populism. It's mentioned in the Federalist Papers, and it's something that uh, we look to as an, an important way to make sure that the people, we the people, actually have an ongoing say in the government that is given to us, that is that is uh, elected and, and representing our interests. And so from the standpoint of what is constitutional populism and conservative populism, it starts from that threshold assumption. But then it says, how? what are the issues that are most pressing to the country? And I think it's easy in the beltway for uh, institutions to, to, to set their agendas based on what they've been working on for 10, 15 years. And, and, and there's some legitimacy to that. But what is really needed, I believe, is to set the fight and to frame the debates in the moment based on where the country's needs are. And, and I think that's one of the things that President Trump uh, had such a great talent for was to figuring out uh, where where drug prices, uh, where the border, wh where was the people of the country uh, concerned the most with, and, you, and, and that's where he wanted to fight. And I think that's mm -hmm. the sentiment that we want to bring to this uh, mm -hmm. as, we get, as we move forward. And Russ, it's clear that in 2016 there was a schism between the establishment and the base, the grassroots. Um, do you see what you're doing, just real quick, as being a connective tissue between those two? It depends. I mean, our hope is to move forward and lead. And if we can take a, a wider coalition and bring uh, others uh, into that coalition, uh, we would welcome them. And I, and I think that we can have a great uh, ability to do that. But people are going to have to be on board with these ideas. All right. Well, your, your motto, you said it's for God, for country, for community. I know a lot of folks agree with that mission, and, and we wish you the best. Thank you, Carrie. That's Russ Vote from the Center for American Restoration. Stay tuned. We will be right back, folks. Hey, good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad that you're here with us. Joining us is Pastor Rob McCoy. He's out in California and he's at Godspeak Calvary Chapel. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning, Carrie. 
So give us an update. I know you've been on our network several times. Uh, you even in December also joked with David Brody, my colleague, about how you were designating your church as a strip club uh, so that you could get around the shutdown orders. What's happened since you gave that? And is it is it true that strip clubs in California were allowed to remain open even though churches were shut down? Yeah, uh, in San Diego specifically, the judge had allowed the, the strip clubs to remain open but still uh, had the churches shuttered. And uh, he said it was an expression of the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, and that's why he allowed strip clubs. But he didn't see the other part, that there's freedom of religion in that same First Amendment. So what happened when you said you were going to designate your, your church as a temporary st strip club? Well, we've just been trying to bring attention to the stupidity of these lockdown orders, and especially uh, the violation of our, our First Amendment freedoms, our inalienable rights. So... Uh, we, we've we've been violating the restraining order. Uh, we've been pushing back, and we're just trying to get ju uh, churches to do the same. We've had some traction, but the judges here in California really have no desire to honor that First Amendment and allow churches to be open. It's it's tyrannical uh, and draconian measures that they're doing. And what about folks who say, okay, well, it's one thing to you know keep a church closed, but it's another thing to allow the church. For example, uh, there are churches here in Virginia. They they are open, but they are keeping social distance. They are masking, so they're allowed to meet. They're allowed to gather. They're still allowed to have that First Amendment gathering uh, right, but they are keeping those rules, and so they're allowed to remain open, and they're not getting fined. So why don't you take that middle ground because you guys are not doing social distancing, you're not wearing masks, uh, and kind of play it that way. That way, you're you're still allowed to be open. Um, um, but you are following those rules. We were never given that option. Uh, the governor only allows us to meet outside. And, and right now, as we speak, it's 43 degrees outside. We're allowed to meet outside. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what's healthy about that, quite frankly, especially in cold and flu season. But we were never given that option to be six feet apart and no masks. Um, so we, we've never had the opportunity to even meet inside in relation to that. But we did, uh, we did look at the data and there's there's no empirical data for masks nor social distancing and we've been wide open since may 31st and up until uh early uh early december actually mid-december we hadn't even had a case one case of covid and then we did get uh some cases of covid uh but nothing severe and we did have one or two deaths in our congregation but they were members who are older who didn't attend the church. So I just, I, I don't understand how they can take a virus that has uh, more than a 99% survival rate and justify shuttering our First Amendment rights. When in a 12 month period in, in American history, we've had the most opioid deaths. As, as somehow the church is irrelevant in helping the emotional and spiritual condition of our nation. Uh, the, the church is essential. I don't need a governor to tell me that. So if you guys had the option, have you presented that to a judge to say, hey, look, we'll, we'll whatever, we'll do the mouse, whatever, we'll do six feet distancing, but just allow us to meet indoors. Have you presented that option? We, we've presented everything we can, and, and still we get nothing from this governor. Nothing. And it appears, at least, that he said rhetorically that he wants to start reopening the state. Is that in practice actually happening out there? And is he allowing churches to be part of that? Uh, churches still have to meet outside. Uh, restaurants are now being allowed to meet outside in canopies. 
And and just to give you an idea, 65% of the restaurants in Ventura County will never reopen. Their, their entire business and livelihood has been destroyed. But yet the governor still gets to go to the, the French Laundry restaurant with 24 of his cronies on our taxpayer bill, uh, including the, the health officer of California with a, with a bar bill that's tens of thousands of dollars. And he doesn't social distance. He doesn't wear a mask. But for us peons, we all have to do that. This isn't about the health of our state. This is about a power grab from a tyrannical governor. It's real simple. There's a big movement to recall him. Are you supporting that? Is it getting momentum? What's going to happen with this? Absolutely. Well, we, we want to get 1.5 million signatures uh, so that we have a, a cushion. And we're going to obtain that. And everybody's pushing for it. And, and people are investing in it. And even out in our church, we have people signing up all the time. And do you think that uh, his political future is, is doomed? Do you think he was trying to, to use California as a stepping stone to the White House? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know his motivations. All I know is a constituency here in California is tired of the tyranny. And th this is the only option we have in California. We can recall a governor. So we're doing it. Mm -hmm. And what about the people who, I, I was uh, speaking with someone who had looked at the numbers that millions of Americans had said, with the shutdown, they actually, even when things reopen, they said they're not very likely to go back to church again, that they've kind of uh, taken that out of their lifestyle. Have you heard this from a lot of folks? And is this something that concerns you? Oh, yeah. And, and I, I think it, it's it's calculated and orchestrated uh, to, to put the church on a video and going, you know, watching watching church uh, on, on a video is like watching a fireplace. You can see it and hear it, but you can't feel the warmth. And and attention spans of Americans are declining, and we've we've frightened them to quarantine them and put them indoors, easier to control and manipulate. And the idea of exercising your freedoms that they're they're going to punish you if you step out of line. And they they've tried to make an example of us. We've pushed back, and others are standing with us. And you come to find that when you're in the den with the lions and you you stand, uh, they're toothless and they don't they don't bite. All right, Pastor Rob McCoy, we appreciate it. Thanks, Gary. Bless you, dear. All right. Thank you. All right. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. More about what's happening today with the pro-life movement, the March for Life. We'll give you all the details. Today. Hey there. Good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I want to let you know about March for Life. It is today. Hundreds of thousands of pro-life Americans made their voices heard this month. March for Life says we are a pro-life generation. Thank you for marching for life. They are having the March for Life January 29th, 2021, and that is today. This is at noon. You can go to marchforlife.org today at 12 o'clock Eastern and watch the March for Life. They've got a big lineup there. You can see on screen they've got the virtual Rose Dinner Gala, and Tim Tebow, the NFL star, is going to be the keynote speaker there. They've also got Matthew West, a Grammy-nominated singer, Chris Smith, a congressman from New Jersey, Lila Rose, the founder and president of Live Action. Lots of people. Uh, congresswoman Kat Kamek, who is a congresswoman from Florida who we've had on this program, she'll be speaking as well. This is all going to be right now online. 
for the most part, uh, just, you know, everything that's been happening with the coronavirus shutdown, Washington, D.C. is boarded up and shut down in large respects. And also with what happened with January 6th, those horrific attacks on Capitol Hill, the pro-life march organizers said that they were concerned and just wanted to make sure that everyone is safe. And so it's all going to be online. They don't want any enthusiasm to be dampened, even if it's moved online. And I heard an interview with the founder or the, the, the one of the board members and leaders of March for Life, and she said that former President President Trump, he was the first sitting president to attend the March for Life rally. Joe Biden will not be attending this, even though he is Catholic, uh, he is pro-abortion, um, and a Catholic leadership will be very present, though, um, at this organization. Make sure to go to marchforlife.org to check that out. All right, that does it for us. Stay tuned for War Room.